Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, Episode 7 for January 1st, 2006. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. This is a weekly podcast published each Sunday evening, sometime before midnight. You can also find most of the information covered in our sessions at adventuresinsecurity.com. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like us to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. The purpose of this podcast is the exploration of security management, including the crazy things people try to do to each other and to themselves. The uh, featured topic for this episode is eradication, recovery, and control activities in incident management. But before we get to that, I'd like to go over uh, three current events issues and comment on what this might mean to your business. The first has to do with the Data Accountability and Trust Act, or DATA, which is officially known as H.R. 4127. It's a proposed law currently in committee in the House of Representatives. A similar law is working its way through the Senate. If passed, data would impose a federal requirement on businesses to notify consumers of the possible compromise of their confidential information. In addition, companies that collect and sell personal information would be required to inform the FTC about how they plan to safeguard that information when it's in their possession. If a breach did occur, these information brokers would have to submit to periodic security audits by the Federal Trade Commission. Many believe this law is not strong enough, and I tend to agree. It only requires notification of consumers if the company believes there is a significant risk of fraud. This is pretty subjective. Who makes that decision, and what are the guidelines for doing so? This leaves it entirely up to the company involved. In a typical scenario, I believe most organizations will tend to worry more about how this affects the bottom line instead of how it impacts the affected consumers. The disclosure of consumer information is a serious public relations issue for any business. Companies will be hesitant to disclose such a breach. On the positive side, this is a move in the right direction. Even if not perfect, it's an incremental step toward better security of personal information. Looking at 2005, it's clear this is needed. According to John Swartz, in a USA Today piece entitled 2005, Worst Year for Breaches of Computer Security, there have been at least 130 reported breaches, exposing more than 55 million Americans in just 2005. These numbers are probably far lower than the actual number of compromises. It's difficult to determine the actual number of data compromise incidents because many companies are unaware they've been visited by information thieves. To maintain the value of stolen credit card and banking information, for example, it's in the hacker's best interest to keep his presence on a company's network a secret. In the face of this growing problem, keepers of personal information remain unregulated in many states. So what can you do to prepare for what I believe is an inevitable move by the feds to regulate the protection of consumer information? Well, look beyond the typical security measures. Firewalls and other perimeter safeguards are needed, but they don't protect against social engineering and other types of information compromises that don't require the effort of cracking your fortress walls. Employ network monitoring, such as IDS and IPS. Develop effective policies and procedures for handling and storing sensitive information, and train your employees. Finally, convince all levels of management 
that the protection of consumer information from unauthorized access is not just a bottom line thing, it's the right thing to do. Organizations covered by regulations like Sarbanes-Oxley have to look beyond maintaining compliance. SOX, for example, is only concerned with protecting the integrity of financial information. It doesn't go far enough when considering how to protect information that can be used to steal the identities of your customers or employees. Don't get me wrong, compliance is important, but it shouldn't be the only reason to implement security safeguards. This next story is an example of why enforcing separation of duties is a good idea. In a December 28, 2005 article published at securitypipeline.com, Amy Uzonian reported that 49 people have been indicted for scamming the Red Cross out of up to $400,000 in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. They accomplished this while working as call center agents for a Red Cross contractor at a call center in Bakersfield, California. They did this by following a very simple process. When relocated Katrina evacuees contacted the call center for assistance, they were only required to provide their name, address, and birth date. With this information, the call center agent would create an account that could be used by the caller to obtain aid. More important to my point is that the call agents created the accounts and approved them. The individuals indicted used this opportunity to create and approve fake accounts they then used to siphon off aid dollars. Although the Red Cross is taking steps to revamp the system, this is a prime example of why separation of duties is a good principle for any organization to follow. In this case, if the person who created the account was not allowed to also approve the account, the probability of fraud might have been significantly lower. In your organization, separation of duties should be translated as ensuring no one person is able to perform every task in a business process. This forces collusion to commit fraud or violate policy. Our final story, before we move to our featured topic, deals with an investigative report by the Democratic staff of the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security. The report is entitled, Leaving the Nation at Risk, 33 Unfulfilled Promises from the Department of Homeland Security. I'm only going to discuss the three issues in the report dealing with cybersecurity. According to Security Gap number 13 in the report, the nation's critical infrastructure remains at risk until a better system is developed for identifying cyber attacks and vulnerabilities. According to the report, the Department of Homeland Security has yet to develop and deploy a national warning system for infrastructure protection to deal with the rapid spread of cyber attacks. Okay, I agree. They haven't, but they're getting closer. Visit www.us-cert.gov. You'll find that the feds have provided a wealth of information if you just go look for it. You can even subscribe to security alerts and bulletins. I will concede that a national plan for identifying and blocking fast-spreading cyber attacks is needed, but why do we have to rely on the government? Governmental agencies may take the lead, but in my opinion, the private sector, including the major telecom carriers, will have to take on the responsibility of policing and repairing itself. This overlaps with Promise 14. The department promised to improve private sector outreach on cybersecurity threats and vulnerabilities. Promise 15 is also related. It reads, The private sector can be a valuable partner 
in preventing cyber attack, but the department must do more to involve it in cybersecurity efforts. I have to go along with the writers of the report on this one. The one thing the federal government can and should do is take a leadership role in bringing together all facets of the private sector to address national cybersecurity. Until this is done, cybersecurity will continue to be fragmented into various vendor and private organization-led groups with no overall coordination. For those interested in reviewing the full report, it can be found by clicking on the link located in the links page at adventuresinsecurity.com. That's it for current events. I'll put my soapbox away and we'll move on to our featured topic, Recovery, Eradication, and Control Activities in Incident Management. This wraps up a three-week series on incident management and response. It's nearly impossible to define a detailed eradication process general enough to include in a 15 to 20 minute podcast. Each attack is unique, requiring a unique approach to eliminating the corresponding threat. Proper preparation prior to an attack, however, will provide you with the tools and external resources necessary to put together an effective eradication plan. Eradication includes deleting malware from affected systems, disabling access for compromised user accounts, detention of human intruders, possible arrest or termination of employees responsible for fraudulent or destructive acts, and any other action that removes a threat and stops attack activities. The first three steps of incident response, detect, contain, and eradicate, are focused on containing the scope of the attack and eliminating the threat. Once these objectives are met, recovery operations begin. Recovery operations can actually start once containment is achieved. Recovery of critical systems may be necessary to meet deadlines associated with employees, for example, payroll, or customers. The important thing to remember is to ensure the system you plan to recover is no longer exposed to the threat. Your flexibility in simultaneously executing multiple steps during incident response is directly related to the IRT skills developed during training and practice exercises before an attack occurs. An IRT is your incident response team. Depending on the nature of an attack and your ability to quickly identify and contain it, activities intended to recover business systems might include reconnecting servers and workstations to the network, system restores from tape, complete rebuild of systems, replacement of compromised files or reinstallation of applications, immediate device hardening, including installation of patches, changing passwords, and reconfiguring physical and logical perimeter devices. Again, each attack is different. With each response, your team should get incrementally better at minimizing the amount of recovery work necessary. This is the purpose of the final step in the incident management process, which is control or manage. The activities related to this step take place after all other steps are complete and all affected systems are restored. The purpose of the control step is to review the incident and determine how to prevent the same type of successful attack in the future, as well as to identify areas for improvement to facilitate faster response and better business impact mitigation. Using documents created during the detect, contain, and eradicate steps, the IRT seek to answer the following questions. What happened? What was supposed to happen? What are the differences or gaps? What are the reasons for the differences? What controls failed or were missing in the areas of people, process, and technology? 
and what are the lessons learned? The process of answering these questions and the development of an action plan to improve incident detection and response are the elements of an after-action review, or AAR. One of the easiest and most effective methods of tracing the chain of cause and effect is through the use of a cause and effect diagram. The details about how to construct a cause and effect diagram can be found by selecting the Apollo Root Cause Analysis link on the link page at adventuresinsecurity.com. An action plan is the final product of a complete incident response. Based on the results of an after-action review, the action plan is a roadmap or project plan containing tasks for improving controls and response. The tasks in the plan should be prioritized based on the business value to be derived from each. A person or team must be assigned ownership of each task and expected completion dates should be set. To summarize our series on incident management, Incident management is a key part of an organization's efforts to maintain accurate, on-time service delivery. Building an incident management capability requires careful preparation, complete documentation, and the formation and training of IRTs. Testing incident response scenarios is just as important as testing recovery from potential declared disasters. The steps in responding to an incident are detection, containment, eradication, recovery, and control. The use of cause and effect diagrams to map the course of an incident and the efforts to recover from its effects is an important tool for identifying weak or missing controls. The use of a cause and effect diagram as part of an overall AAR leads to the creation and execution of an action plan designed to strengthen an organization's ability to prevent significant adverse business impact due to security incidents. Well, that's it for this week. Have a secure and happy new year, and be careful what you click.